Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Morning, church. Are we awake? All right. I was not feeling very happy whenever I, my alarm went off this morning, but uh, I got there with the assistance of coffee. Thank the Lord for inventing caffeine for us. Um, it's great to see you today, uh, especially since many of you uh, are probably sleepier than you would prefer to be, but still it's great to see a full house at church this morning. Um, I'm, I'm excited because I have a lot of family in town, uh, maybe the, the most family I've ever had in town at one time. Uh, so if you see a couple rows up here, if you see a cowboy hat, uh, it's my brother-in-law, JD, one of the few men in the world that seriously intimidates me. <laughs> Whenever I, I performed my sister and brother-in-law's wedding, and uh, I just, just, for, just for kicks, uh, I, I put on his sport coat, uh, and I was swimming in it. <laughs> so uh, he's a big man, and... Anyway, my, they're, they're in Knoxville. I have my parents, uh, my in-laws all here in town. Reese was in a play uh, at school, her final one, since this is her senior year. So final play, she's done theater for years. So it's just great having a lot of family in town to, to, to watch her and celebrate together. Um, so anyway, we're, we're in a, a series in the Gospel of Luke. And right now, we're at the, in the middle of the book, and this particular block of text that we're working our way through focuses on the teachings of Jesus. And today, the topic that we're going to discuss is the return of Christ, or the second coming of Jesus. In a nutshell, the way that we prepare for the return of Christ is by persevering in our faith by continually repenting of our sin, being renewed in the gospel, anticipating his return. And we prepare for his return in that manner. Back in Jesus' day, where the story I'm going to read to you takes place, God's people, the Jewish people, they had an expectation of when the Messiah would come. They had an expectation that God would send the Messiah to them. And here's what they were looking for. They expected that the Messiah would show up on the scene and give back the Jewish people the homeland that they were promised because they were in, the land that, they were, that was promised to them was being occupied by the Romans. And so the Jews were living there under Roman rule, and they didn't like it. It was the Romans who executed Jesus. So they expected that God would send the Messiah, give them back their homeland, kick the Romans out, and returned them back to the glory days, back to the way it was during the days of David or King Solomon. So whenever Jesus does show up, he steps onto the scene and he does a lot of things that you would expect a Messiah to do, perhaps. He, he performs miraculous signs. He was healing people. He was feeding people, like feeding the 5,000 with some fish and bread. He was walking on water, calming the storm. I mean, Christ performed so many miraculous signs. And so naturally, people were drawn to him. He was a charismatic leader. And get this, his primary message, the number one theme, scholars agree on this, his number one theme of his, all of his preaching and teaching was the kingdom of God. So you got a 
guy preaching about the kingdom of God, and he's performing miraculous signs, and he teaches with authority. So naturally, you're expecting, okay, this is the Messiah, and we want him to fulfill all the things that we expect the Messiah to do. They were drawn to him as a charismatic leader, and his message about the kingdom resonated. So naturally, they wanted the kingdom of God to arrive. They wanted all these things to take place. They wanted the Romans out. They wanted their homeland back. And so they wondered... Could Jesus be the Messiah? Could he be the one we've been waiting for? But there were some things about Jesus that didn't fit their expectations. And those included the Pharisees, who didn't care a lot for Jesus. They didn't like him at all. In fact, they opposed him at every turn. And so now we're going to look at our text. We're in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Let's dig in and let's see this interaction that Jesus had with the Pharisees. I pushed my button. Are we... Are we good there, Nathan? Or I'll push it again just to make sure. But Luke 17, um, starting in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is God's word. Let's start by talking about the first coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ. So we'll go through the text again. Verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees, so here's the audience, when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed with your five senses. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. 
So the Pharisees asked the question. That's who he's interacting with here, the Pharisees. They said, hey, Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? We're expecting it. You haven't done the things that we thought you would have done by now to establish your kingdom. When's it going to show up, Jesus? And the fact that they're asking him this question indicates that they don't understand Jesus' teaching. When the Pharisees thought of the kingdom of God, they were looking for something tangible, like a throne, a palace, an army, a conquering war. But if they'd paid attention to Jesus' teaching, they would know that the kingdom of God begins with a spiritual reformation. The tangible kingdom they were looking for could not take place until God had first dealt with sin. So verse 21, this verse here, it says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That's a key phrase. Some other translations say the kingdom of God is within you. You might have that in your translation. But the commentaries I read said the midst of you is the best translation. The point being is that Jesus is saying you're looking in the wrong place. I had a situation a couple months ago where I was running late trying to get somewhere and I couldn't find my glasses. And I drive, I, like I'm nearsighted, so I, to, see, to see things further away, I need my glasses. So I, I, I didn't have my glasses with me, and I, or I couldn't find them, so I was like looking around. I have like a drawer in my kitchen where I keep my keys and my wallet. It's like whenever I come in the house, everything, all my pockets, like 15 pounds worth of stuff. I empty out my pockets, it all goes in this drawer. And so whenever I Time to leave, there's my phone, there's my wallet, there's my keys, my glasses, everything I need is right in this drawer. So I'm getting ready to leave and my glasses aren't in there. And so I start looking around, where's my glasses? Where's my glasses? Anybody seen them? And so I look, well, I've got this little table where I, beside the couch where I sit. I've got, you know, we have a little stand where the TV is. I thought maybe they were there. So I start looking around, I couldn't find it and I'm getting more and more frustrated. I can't find my glasses. Until I realized they were already on my face. Some of you, you may have done this. I'm not the kind of person that always has them on. It's like I take them on or off, you know, depending on the situation. And I was already wearing them. So I was, I was, I was looking for them, but I wasn't looking where I expected them to be. And the Pharisees were just like this. They were asking Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus is like, hey, fellas, you're looking at them. You know, the kingdom of God is standing right here in the midst of you. Don't you see me? But they didn't recognize their king. And the thing is, Jesus is the king. He is the the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But they didn't recognize him because he was not the kind of king they were looking for. He didn't meet their expectations. So imagine this. Like, if you're one of the Pharisees, you're standing there with Jesus. And Jesus is the king. And you're asking him, hey, Where's the kingdom at? And you're talking to the guy who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the guy who made everything. He reigns over the the world. He gives sight to the blind. He gives hearing to the deaf. He made crippled men walk again. They've seen that. They've been present for these things. They were not unfamiliar with his works. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We know that you do all that. It's well and good. But tell us when the kingdom will get here, Jesus. They didn't recognize that those things that he had done were signs of the kingdom and that those were indicators of his authority to deal with the real sin problem that every human, need, every human faces. So his response is, you're looking at him. The kingdom of God isn't out there somewhere. Look, there it is. Oh, look over there. There's the kingdom. There it went. 
I said, no, don't. you're not going to see it that way. The kingdom of God is here in the midst of you. So the Pharisees missed it because they expected a conquering hero, this warrior that would ride in on a chariot and triumph over all of his enemies and defeat the Romans. Jesus didn't do that, at least not at his first coming. Jesus is a conquering hero. Jesus is a triumphant warrior, but that will be the way he returns when he comes the second time. This time, he was the Lamb of God, the suffering servant, humble. And the Pharisees did not understand that the cross comes before the crown. And there's no king without a cross. I want to skip down a couple of verses to verse 25. Verse 25, Jesus gives them the missing piece. But first, this is what needs to happen. This is the next thing on my to-do list before, before I, I do all the other things that the Messiah would do. But this is the thing that I've got to do. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Why the must part? I mean, he could have said he will suffer, just a prediction. But Jesus said he must suffer, meaning it was a requirement. And the answer to that is the cross was necessary because God is perfectly holy and human sin and rebellion is punishable only by death. You might be familiar with Romans 6.23 that says the wages of sin is death, meaning that's what... That's what sin deserves. It deserves a wage. Whenever we sin against God, we earn something. And what we earn is a wage, and that wage is called death, Romans 6.23. And so death is the only fitting penalty when human beings sin against the God who is the author of life, the God who gave us life, the God who puts blood in our veins and breath in our lungs. Whenever we sin against that God who sustains us moment by moment, who makes our heart beat and our lungs breathe, whenever that God is sinned against, the only proper response is to withhold the life that he is the source of from those people that are rebelling against him. Every human being has sinned against God. Every one of us, myself included, all of you, everyone in this room has sinned against God. And God's justice requires a human death to pay for that human sin. And so apart from Christ, we will all die. And we will all die not only in this life, but we will face an eternal death in separation from, God's, from fellowship with God in hell. That's, that's what human sin earns. That's our wage. However, Jesus came as a real human man so he could die in our place as a human. And the enemy that he conquered was sin and death. That's what he came to do. That's why he must suffer and be rejected and die on a cross for, this, for, for our sins. Because we otherwise would be lost we need a rescuer. We need a redeemer. We need a savior. That's what the Messiah needs to do. That's what we need. We need a Messiah who will do those things to pull us out of the pit. And so only Jesus was qualified to do this. He was qualified to die for us because he was fully human, just like us. And he was fully divine, just like God. 
And whenever they nailed him to a cross and they put that cross in the ground and he was suspended between heaven and earth, he was the one and only mediator between sinful man and holy God. And the death that was required to restore the fellowship between a holy God and sinful man was met in the God-man Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. That's what he did for us. The Son of Man must suffer. He must be rejected. He must die. These words in this verse are referring to his crucifixion. These things must happen. That's why he came. was so that he could rescue humans from our sin. So whenever Jesus died on that cross, his justice was satisfied. And sin and Satan were defeated. And the way to forgiveness and eternal life were opened up through his death. And when Jesus rose from the dead, death itself was defeated. He left it in the dust. And then Christ was enthroned as the eternal righteous king. And whenever Jesus returns, he will fully establish his kingdom. When he returns, all the things that they were expecting at the first coming will come true in its proper time, which is the second coming. They didn't realize They thought when the kingdom arrived, all these things that were promised to us as God's people, the Jewish people, would come true. And Jesus is saying, hey, no, there's something that needs to happen between now and then. First, I must suffer because that is the ultimate enemy I need to vanquish. So he will return and establish his kingdom in fullness, and he will reign with his redeemed people in glory forever. That's what tripped up the Pharisees. They expected the end of the movie to happen in the middle. But there was still a whole lot of movie to still be played out, which is still playing out because Christ has not come yet. And so they couldn't accept a humble king, a friend of sinners king, a suffering and dying king. No, they're not having that. They only want the conquering hero king. And if that's not what Jesus came to do the first time, well, away with it. And they had no idea that in a divine irony, they were the very instrument to bring about the death that Jesus must have suffered. They only wanted a mighty victorious king, a conquering and killing king, a reigning and ruling king. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of God, or word of the cross rather, is folly to those who are perishing. It was folly to the Pharisees. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The thing that they said crucify him to, we say yes and amen to. The word of the cross is the most beautiful thing. That's the first coming of Christ. But there is a second coming, and that's what the rest of the text is about. Let's keep going. Here's the second coming. And he said to the disciples. Now, earlier, who was he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees, right? He was talking to those who would not receive him, and he knew it. So when he's talking to them, he's dealing with their issue which is the kingdom of God, you're getting it wrong. I need to suffer and die first. But then, different audience. He turns away from the Pharisees, and now he's talking to his followers, his disciples. He said to the disciples, the days are coming. So, future. Uh, This is my my problem with being left-handed. 
I got, I got the hook, and so my screen thinks I'm... Okay. The days are coming. That's future. That's second coming. When you will see or will desire, that's future. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So now he's speaking to his disciples. They already believe in him. They're already followers. They they know he's the Messiah. He's the true king. They know that since the true king is here, the kingdom has already arrived in Christ. So now Jesus says, all right, here's, let me tell you where things are headed. The days are coming, shifting to the future. And he's telling his disciples, my second coming is going to be different than the first coming. Radically different. The first coming will will arrive in the most unimaginably humble way. The kingdom will be a little baby born in poverty to unknown people in an unknown town. That's the first coming. The second coming will be different, very different. And it's not going to be this humble thing where you're like, is is that the kingdom? No, maybe that's the kingdom over there. He's like, no, no, you're not going to miss it. Trust me, you're not going to miss it. He says it's going to be like a bolt of lightning lighting up the sky whenever he returns. So it's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to be unmistakable like a lightning bolt. Did you know a lightning bolt can reach 54,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, according to science, about five times hotter than the surface of the sun. How they know how hot the surface of the sun is, who knows? But that's what, that's what the internet said anyway. Um, a lightning bolt can have up to a billion volts of electricity. And he said it's so much power that it can cause a tree to explode. I've, I've, uh, I've, I've seen these little videos on uh, like Instagram and stuff where it's just like, there's like, you see like a, a, a security camera or something just like filming a storm. And then all of a sudden you just got this lightning bolt that just boom, and a tree just like, like blows up out of nowhere. It's crazy. That's what, sorry, I think I disturbed the kid. <laughs> but that's what a lightning bolt is like. And so they say that the heat will, will travel through the tree at such speed that it causes the sap inside the tree to vaporize, which creates steam, which causes the trunk to explode. Jesus says, so will the Son of Man's coming be when I show up. Nobody's going to miss it. Why? Because Jesus is God. He is the creator. He is the creator of lightning. He's the creator of trees. He's the creator of heat. He's the creator of sap. He's the creator of the sun. He is the creator of all of these things. And when he returns, you're not going to have to look twice. You're not going to miss it. There will be no doubt about it. And to illustrate what it will be like, Jesus gives two different examples from the Old Testament. He said it's going to be like Noah and it's going to be like Lot. Let's look at these. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. I've skipped over this. Let me go back. Just as it was in the days of Noah, that was first. 
so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Next one. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, which means they were expecting a good future. You don't plant a garden if you don't expect to be around to harvest it. You don't build a house if you don't expect to be around to live in it. So life is going on as normal. Things are great. We're doing well. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The common theme connecting people in Noah's day and the people in Lot's day in the book of Genesis, if you know the story, was extreme sin. Like a, a next level kind of rebellion going on in the days of Noah and in Lot's day, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in both cases, there was this sudden, unexpected, unmistakable judgment of God that came and destroyed the people who were involved in that. In Noah's day, it was a form of a flood. In Lot's day, it was fire raining down from heaven. So God's righteous judgment came upon unsuspecting people, and it was swift and it was severe like a bolt of lightning. Jesus says, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The second coming, it's going to be like Noah's flood that wiped out the earth. It's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah where, where it rained fire from heaven. God will judge the world in a similar way as he did in those days. And this is, this is nothing un, unusual. This is what the Christian faith has always taught. The Apostles' Creed teaches that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Every true Christian believes this. On that day, when Jesus returns, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, still talking about the night, night, not necessarily meaning it happens at night because the whole earth isn't night all at the same time. So somewhere it's going to be daytime. So it's a metaphorical word here. In that night, in that day, whenever it happens, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, get this, this is, this is cryptic and strange. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The return of Christ will be this catastrophic event. Catastrophic like it was in the days of the global flood in Noah's day. Or like it was in Lot's day when the destruction of Sodom. But Jesus is describing a moment where basically it it seems like everything is thrown into chaos. You have people that are lost and confused, people that are missing, they can't locate their friends. Like, we're, 
He was just here. He was, he was just right here in the bed with me. We were, just, we were just grinding at this mill together, and now they're gone. One, one is taken, and one is left. Now, this is, this is referring back to Noah and Lot, right? So in Noah's day, being taken was a means of escape. Noah and his family, there were eight of them, they were taken out and preserved by God from the judgment, right? God put them in the ark, which preserved them. So they were taken, everything else was destroyed. In the days of Sodom, Lot and his family, they were taken out, which was a means of, of protecting them from judgment. God saved them. They were taken, but everybody left, experienced the judgment. And so this is a promise that God will do this to all of his faithful people. Like, the destruction that we're talking about here is not something that you, Christian, will have to endure. We will be taken. We will be preserved. We will be rescued. God will take us. He will not leave us here to face his wrath. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 6. This is from the Apostle Paul. And he's referring to the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. For the Lord himself, the Lord there is Jesus Christ, he will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who have our loved ones who knew Jesus, he will resurrect them. They will experience resurrection at this time. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. Now I think that's that's being taken, as the way Luke uses the word in, in his gospel. But those who, are, those who are living at that time, who are faithful followers, they will be caught up, meaning they will be taken, and they will be rescued from the judgment to come. They'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, that's great. We will always be with the Lord. That, I mean, that's, that's good news. That's comforting. If you are here and you know Jesus, the worst thing that you might fear ever happening to you, Jesus says, that's not going to happen to you because I want to rescue you from it. You will be taken. So, verse 18, encourage one another with these words. There you go. Be encouraged. Be encouraged <laughs> with these words. Faithful Christians have nothing to fear because the judgment that God is bringing was already absorbed by Christ himself. The wrath of God that will be poured out on the earth when Christ returns has already been poured out on Christ. That's why he must suffer. The suffering was not like, you know, you could get shot and die instantly. It's like there is a suffering, there is a taking on of the wrath of God that he suffered on the cross. Now, there is a cryptic command in the middle of this text. I mean... Let me go back to it. Remember Lot's wife. Three words. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus says these three words, they're haunting words, to remind us of her tragic story, and we'll look at that in a second. But he tells us this as a word of warning to us. It's a warning. I grew up in Huntington, well, actually, West Virginia, but not Huntington. That was the town that we would drive to. <laughs> I grew up in Wayne County, West Virginia. And there's a lot of dangerous roads, curvy, hilly roads with, you know, wind around, 
wind around a corner, over a hill, there's a creek bed, there's a, there's a hill. Uh, it's just windy roads all over the place, and a lot of them were two-lane roads. And it was just like all the state highways, 55 miles an hour. And so people would drive 55 when they had no business going that fast on some of these roads. And so in, in a few places where there's a particularly dangerous curve, you'll see white crosses there. You've probably seen these in other roads. But those white crosses, what do they do? It's not merely a memorial to the person who died there, which it is. But it is also a warning, slow down. Watch, watch yourself, pay attention to this curve because there's danger in this curve. When Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, in your Bible, that's a white cross in the road. Say, pay attention to what I'm about to say. Listen to what I'm saying to you here. She, take all that story of Lot and his wife because it applies here. Somebody died here. So let's talk about Lot's wife. Her story is in Genesis 19. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you're not familiar with the story, quick recap. God sent angels to rescue Lot and his family out of the city of Sodom. So Lot is called in other scriptures a righteous man. Although when you read the book of Genesis, you see, you see his flaws in, in vivid color. But he, nevertheless, he was a righteous man, meaning he was one of God's faithful. Um, so he was living in Sodom with his family. And these angels came because God was going to destroy the city. Judge them for their wickedness. But he came to rescue Lot and his family from the city. So God rescued Lot and his wife and their two daughters. But later on, Lot's wife got caught up in the judgment of the city and she died too. What happened there? What happened was that she took God's mercy for granted. Like she had, she had been saved from destruction, but what the story of Genesis, all it says is that she turned back. But what Jesus is telling us here, and Jesus would know the story, right? Jesus is telling us there's a lot more going on. It's not just, it's not just turning back. There's something going on. Let's, let's look at just a couple of verses here. This is from Genesis 19, the story of Lot's wife. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities. That's a, that's a vivid word. I mean, it's like upside down. It's like they were literally turned over. And, of course, in that region now, um, archaeologists and people that, you know, search for, you know, the artifacts of the area, they said nothing habitable can live in this area now. It is completely uninhabitable. And all the valley and all the inhabitants of those cities, so there's the people, and what grew on the ground, and it's still true. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, that's weird. <laughs> Whenever I hear pillar of salt, I mean, I, I just picture like a salt shaker. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, so she's running along, and she's like, oh, this, this uh, fire, fireball is about to hit me. And I, so she looks back and just, she freezes. She turns into like a salt shaker. <laughs> There's more going on here than that. Whenever it said that she looked back, it wasn't merely like a back shoulder glance. You know, kind of if you're, you know, if you're uh, driving on a highway and you see like traffic is backed up and there's like the cop lights and all this. And as you're going by, you're like, I wonder what, wonder what happened over there. 
you're kind of looking, rubbernecking, you know, and it's say, up, oh, you shouldn't have looked over there, nosy, boom, pillar of salt, you're done. <laughs> That's not what she did. She was not looking merely because she was curious or merely because she's trying to see where the, uh, you know, the, the fire from heaven was coming to avoid it. The looking back indicated looking back with desire, looking back with longing, with a, with a, a desire to a grief over what she was losing. And that's the important part. That's the instructive part. She died because she longed for Sodom. She had fallen in love with it. She had built a life there in Sodom, and she didn't want to lose it. Now, if you'll, if you'll recall, verse 33, um, a couple of, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. So whoever seeks to preserve their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, this, this follows right on the previous verse. So verse 32, remember Lot's wife. The very next verse, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever, seeks, or whoever loses his life will keep it. So Jesus is connecting that statement about preserving and keeping your life to Lot's wife. They're, they're not disconnected. So Sodom was her life. Salt is a preservative. You would use salt to, to keep something fresh that might otherwise go rotten. And maybe that's why God judged her in this way. I don't, don't know for sure, but, but she was trying to preserve the old life that she had. She's looking back and she's like, man, I missed that. She's thinking, man, I had it made there. I had all this money. I had a nice house. We just got it decorated the way we like it. And we, we, had, we envisioned our grandchildren and, and all this growing up there. And we had this little courtyard and terrace. And it was such a beautiful place there in Sodom. Sodom was such a wonderful town. We loved living there. And while everybody in the entire city is going up in smoke, she looks back thinking, man, I miss that. And so she turned into a preservative. She wanted to preserve her life, and so God turned her into a symbol of preservation. Jesus said, whoever tries to preserve your life, will lose it. Remember Lot's wife? That's what she did. But if you want to save your life, you'll be willing to lose it. God was raining down judgment on Sodom because of its exceeding wickedness and depravity and violence and rather than being chastened by that she was disappointed she's probably thinking why is God being so mean how could a loving God destroy this city she's she's presuming upon the rescue that she had already received I mean think about that she made it out alive she survived, and yet she's still looking back with contempt, thinking, dang it, I had it made there, and now we've got to go out here, and it's, life is going to be difficult. We'll have to suffer out here. We'll have to figure out a new way to survive. God took this from us. So even though God sent angels to rescue her, even though God was merciful to her to make a way of escape, her heart still belonged to Sodom. 
God was judging Sodom for sin, and Lot's wife loved the sin that God was judging. Think of what a privilege it was. Only four people made it out of there alive. I mean, think about it, after 9-11. If you were the last guy to run out of the building before they collapsed, you would think, oh my gosh, I almost died there. You would be thanking your lucky stars. You'd be praising the God of heaven that you did not go down and lose your life in the rubble. But she was like, man, I had a corner office in those Twin Towers. Remember, Lot's wife, don't do what she did, Jesus is telling us. She was one of four people that were spared. And Jesus is warning us, don't turn back to, on your sin. Don't turn back and with, with uh, some longing and desire towards the sinful life that God rescued you from. Persevere to the end. Luke 9, 62, Jesus said, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom. He's saying she put her hand to the plow and she looked back. She wasn't fit for the kingdom. So let's, let's give you some application. Some of you all have incredible stories, and I know it because I've heard your stories. And I've heard from other people, I've heard about your stories. But God has done incredibly amazing things in your life, and you are privileged beyond imagination to be among those that can say, I know Jesus Christ is Lord. You have the treasure. You are wealthy beyond measure. God has given you so much. He has plucked you out of an awful situation, and he has set you free. And think about what a privilege it is that you have been set free from your sin, that you can know that I will never face this kind of judgment. This life can throw its worst at me, but I know that I have an eternal destiny that is fixed and set in heaven, and I will never suffer that fate. So you have this enormous treasure. You are privileged. You are, we are blessed. And rather than our hearts being filled with gratitude, sometimes we're like Lot's wife. Thinking, it's like, man, but I used to really like that sin. What I wouldn't give, just one more time. One more time. Uh, just a weekender, Lord. Just give me a weekender. Go back and have some of that sin again. Because that, that was a lot more fun than this now. Now I'm like, having to obey you and go to church and be responsible and, you know. Remember Lot's wife. Think of all the resources that God has given us. We have nearly unlimited resources for spiritual growth on our phones. How many translations of the Bible, how many commentaries and, and Bible resources and videos and podcasts that you can listen to, to to help us grow spiritually? Think of what a privilege it is. And this is truly a privilege, and I'm not just saying this as PR for our church, but think of how privileged it is that we are in a faithful church that preaches the Bible. That, that's not common. You don't have that just everywhere. And some of us have enjoyed incredible privileges. Some of you have been raised since you were a child to know Jesus. That, that's an incredible gift. We're so blessed. And all of these privileges will not save you. They are God-given privileges to assist you to persevere in your faith. Some of you were plucked right out of the fire when you were on the cusp of destroying your life and doing something unthinkably stupid. And God saved you right at the last minute to keep you from doing it. And I've heard your stories. Some of you have been rescued from bitterness or anger or resentment. Some of you have been set free from all kinds of addictions 
to drugs, to alcohol, to sex, to pornography. You've been rescued out of that. He's freed you, set you free from those addictions. Some of you have been rescued from all kinds of worldly ideologies that kept your mind captive and imprisoned you. Some of you have been rescued literally from oppression by demons, dabbling in occult and witchcraft, and you've been set free. Jesus has set you free from that. He's rescued you. You've been taken. Praise God. Praise God for that. Because he pulled you out of a pit. He set your feet on a solid rock. He gave you a hope and a future. But remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back on that old life that he saved you from Wishing that you could still have a little bit of it. Wishing that you could still dabble in it a little bit. Keep your eyes focused on Christ and don't turn aside to the right or to the left. Keep your eyes focused on Christ. Don't love the world that Jesus is coming to judge. Don't love the sin that Jesus came to forgive and destroy. If I told you right now that one week from today, we know it, sure as anything, Jesus will come back. How would you spend the next seven days? That, that would say a lot. That would say a lot about where your heart is. If you say like, dang it, I still have some Academy Award nominee movies that I haven't watched yet. <laughs> but I still have a few days. You know, squeeze them in. <laughs> you know? Or if you say, you know, I, I never got to see Europe. Man. I, I, maybe I can cash in my visa reward points and Jesus can still find me in Europe. I'll be there. So let me, let me head on over there and I can see the Eiffel Tower one last time before Jesus comes back. So it tells you that you are treasuring the wrong thing. Your heart is set on something that Jesus is going to destroy and he saved you from. Don't love the world that Jesus is going to judge. Remember God's, remember Lot's wife. So if you're a Christian today, God rescued you from that. Don't turn back to the old life. And if you're not a Christian, it's time to get that settled because Jesus is coming back to judge the world. So Jesus' first coming came as the Lamb of God, died, buried, and raised again to take away the sin of the world. At Jesus' second coming, he will return as the Lion of Judah, to judge the world in sin and righteousness and judgment, to to judge the world in wrath. Jesus will not return as a baby in a manger. He will not come in weakness and frailty. He will not come as a suffering servant. He will return suddenly, unexpectedly, unmistakably, and catastrophically, Like a bolt of lightning, he will flash across the sky like a blinding light and the fabric of our material realm will be ripped open. And our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous, will appear in power and strength and might and honor and majesty. And with him will appear all the heavenly hosts who will join him on the earth and fully establish his kingdom. The dead in Christ, they will rise first, join him in the air. And those who are alive at that time will be taken up to greet him. And those who do not believe they will suddenly realize that their opportunity to find salvation is forever lost. It's passed them by. 
And they will be met with an overwhelming dread of confusion and chaos. And they will be caught up, as the Bible says, in the winepress of God's wrath. There will be no time to react. They were not prepared to face the Lord. And when that moment comes, there is no further opportunity. They will be judged. And this text closes with a graphic image. Jesus says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. As horrid and graphic as the image is, what Jesus is saying is, the judgment of God will come like a vulture feasting on a corpse. Therefore, remember Lot's wife. Prepare your heart. You do it the way you've heard me say it a hundred times. Confess your sin to God. I'm a sinner. I need your help. Repent of your sin. Jesus, help me to change. Help me to not live that life. Cling to the hope of the gospel, delighting in the riches that you have received in Christ. But don't look back. Don't look over your shoulder thinking, man, I missed that. You're not missing anything. You're not missing anything. We look forward to meeting our Savior and experiencing all the promises and fulfillment, delight and satisfaction and happiness that heaven has to offer. And we won't even be able to stand it, how fulfilled and satisfied and joyful we will be. It'll blow our hair back with just sheer happiness. Look forward to that. Cling to that hope. When he comes and returns in glory, that's what we await. Let's pray. We thank you, our Lord Jesus, for forgiving us of our sins and for all the ways that you have, you have blessed us. And Lord, we're, we're blessed beyond measure. We're, there's so many ways that we don't acknowledge it. We don't give you gratitude. Forgive us for that, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering in our place and that you came knowing that that is exactly why you came. That you suffered in our place and you took on the wrath of God so that we would not have to. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you, Jesus, for speaking to us your words of promise that we will be taken and we will not be left to face your wrath and your judgment. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given us encouraging words that we will not face that, but we will, we will spend eternity in bliss and joy and satisfaction, delight. There are not enough superlatives to describe what awaits us. And so you tell us, encourage each other with these words. And Lord, may we be encouraged. Lord, help us to heed the warning to remember Lot's wife, that we will not turn back, look over our shoulder and long for the life of sin that we left behind. But rather, we will keep our eyes forward, keep our hopes set on Christ, anticipating the coming when you will come and you will, all the promises that we've been waiting for our whole lives as Christians, you will bring that with you. Help us to anticipate that day. Give us the hope of the gospel. Feed us and fuel us in that hope. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not settled the matter of whether or not they are a Christian, whether or not they believe the gospel and follow you. Lord, I pray that they will, you will not give them rest until Christ is alive in their heart 
and they believe. So I pray now, Holy Spirit, convict and affirm in their heart the truth of the gospel. And now as we come to the table, we thank you. You've prepared a feast before us. May we be nourished from the body and blood of Christ. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.